0: afternoon, folks. Welcome to the latest edition of the Good Trouble Podcast. It's Reginald Williams here from the Massachusetts Budget and Policy Center. We're excited for today's conversation with my co-host, Mr. Gregory Ball. Greg, how are you feeling today?
1: I am feeling all right. I'm feeling all right. I'm back on terra firma. I was traveling. I was mm-hmm. talking about. I was in the skies, Reggie. <laughs> I'm not the greatest flyer in the world, but I'm back on, on solid ground, so I'm good now. I'm feeling ten, good. ten toes down, you feeling it? Exactly, exactly. I know
0: that's right. Well, we're very excited to have two esteemed guests from our community here for today's conversation. Excited to introduce, Excited, very excited to introduce Joe Diamond, the Executive Director of the Massachusetts Association for Community Action, MassCap. And, and then also, Nancy Wagman, the Research and Kids Count Director at the Massachusetts Budget and Policy Center. Joe and Nancy, how are you doing today? You're good good. to
2: see you. Thanks for having us. We're really delighted to be yeah. speaking for myself. Delighted to be here. Come on, Thanks I, statements.
0: I hear that. I hear that. Well, I'm very excited, Joe. Can you tell us a little bit about MassCap for, for listeners who aren't familiar with the great work that you're doing in the community?
3: Sure. Um, MassCap is the association of the 23 federally mandated anti-poverty agencies operating in Massachusetts. There are about a thousand across the country. Um, Like those other community action agencies, uh, we were created uh, in 1964 as part of the Great Society Programs. Um, The report that we'll be talking about a little bit today at a crossroads that that Nancy authored uh, focuses on the history a little bit. Uh, And it's important to note that um, and we're very proud of that history, by the way. It's important to know that we were created in the same couple year period uh, when civil rights legislation was passed, voting rights legislation was passed as well. And so it was a time when it became very important and it was a national priority. And I think that priority still exists, but at the time it was a national priority to reduce inequality, to address inequality in all of its forms. Uh, In in our case, it's to eliminate that paradox of poverty amidst plenty, uh, which we continue to work on. And and the work that we've done is is documented in the report and the work that we have uh, to do um, is documented in the report. The the agencies in Massachusetts uh, are in the communities that were um, determined in the the mid-60s to be um, having the, the most challenges with inequality, the most challenged with poverty. And so agencies were established in those communities. Uh, But our agencies serve virtually every city and town uh, with a variety of programs that are meant to help people um, achieve economic stability and mobility to to thrive eventually. And those those programs really run the gamut uh, to ones that you might have heard of, like fuel assistance and weatherization, uh, to early education and care programs like Head Start, um, programs that prevent homelessness, uh, job training uh, programs, and, and we'll be talking about this particular policy and others later, um, free tax preparation done at voluntary and tax assistance sites to help people access um, both the earned income tax credit, which we know needs to be strengthened, also to access the child tax credit and other tax credits. And so those programs, along with many, many others, uh, are part of a sort of a mix of an integrated approach. Now, community action agencies were established Uh, through um, uh, an act of Congress signed by by President Johnson and and subsequent um, federal statutes that enhanced uh, the the, um, the mission. Um, But in in that legislation is, is sort of a description of what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to do it. And essentially we are anchored in communities and we work with communities um, the first anchor is our board of uh, directors. Uh, th- those boards uh, are divided into three, roughly, parts. Um, people that we serve, the local business community, uh, and then um, elected and appointed officials. And so they're meant to, um, if you will, ensure responsiveness to, to a community. But a part of our role is not just to understand the needs. We do needs assessments every three years. Not only to understand those needs, but to be, active members of the community to lead coalitions, to determine needs, work with allied organizations uh, to make things happen, and very importantly, to work with the people we serve. Head Start, for example, has a policy council, which is is drawn from families that participate in Head Start. Our boards of directors as well are drawn from the community, as I said, and and other examples uh, where we are working actively every day. And that aspect became very important during the pandemic because of the nature of our agencies as being longstanding institutions, re- reliable, trusted institutions in the community. Uh, so that's sort of a thumbnail. Uh, maybe it's more than a thumbnail. Maybe it's a couple of thumbnails related to community action uh, and uh, in Massachusetts and, and across the country.
0: Thank you for that, Joe. And I know that uh, you mentioned, I know that you mentioned um, the earned, in, earned income tax credit and the child tax credit. Can we give a little bit of an overview, Joe or Nancy, about what that program is for folks who aren't familiar with it and why it's so crucial, especially now during the pandemic, uh, to provide supports for families and individuals across the Commonwealth?
3: Absolutely, um, I, I'll start. Nancy will have probably more of the details related to those programs, but I'll, I'll, let me just say that the earned income tax credit and The child tax credit became very important recently, but they've been important for years. In particular, the income tax credit, which has been around, I believe, if I got this correct, since the Nixon administration, I think, Um, maybe maybe a little after that. But or no, actually, I think it was President Ford who signed it into into law. Um, And those are simply—it's a way for people to get some resources back based on your income. we, we see it as one, and people tell us to us all the time, as one of the most powerful anti-poverty tools. Mm-hmm. And it has such enormous potential. Uh, it, it, um, when people access it through our volunteer tax assistance sites, uh, studies show that uh, it supports health. Um, people use the EITC resource along with other resources to cover debts, to pay for car repairs, Uh, to uh, establish savings accounts, and essentially have a hopeful future. It encourages encourages work, which is is important. Uh, And it's it's something that we we know needs to be strengthened um, because it can really establish a platform for ongoing um, stability and mobility. Uh, And it it could be part of, for example, uh, a guaranteed minimum income, if you will. it's got such enormous potential. That potential was recognized by the Massachusetts legislature a few years ago when it doubled the Massachusetts earned income tax credit, which is tied to the federal EITC, uh, and it doubled it doubled that from 15 percent of the federal EITC to 30 percent. Our goal is 50 percent or half of the federal. Uh, and so we're, you know, we're we're bullish on the EITC, uh, and uh, and we know that other people are too, As, you know. Related to that is the fact that the federal government, and the state government, support volunteer income tax assistance sites operation uh, like never before. That that commitment to that network has increased uh, over the years as well. Let me stop there and, and let Nancy talk more about those two things.
2: Yeah, I was. I'm really glad you um, st- you brought up the EITC to talk about Reggie because um, just stepping back uh, half a step, one of um, one of our one of our goals in the paper that we wrote um, in, in on behalf of the Community Action Agency. So sort of to take this broader look, as, as Joe said, the Community Action Agencies were created as part of the Great Society legislation, part of the war on poverty. And so what we wanted to do was say, well, hey, why are people poor? And why do we have poverty in this land of plenty? Why is there inequality? Why do we see these disparities in who is poor in this country, largely people of color, immigrants, what, what's going on. So in the report, what we've tried, what we have tried to do is look back over the scan of um, Massachusetts history, look at some of the major policies that have provided opportunity for some as the country has grown, as the economy has expanded, and policies that have actually created barriers for others and have gotten in the way of equal access to opportunity um, across the state. And we find even, you know, we wouldn't have needed a war on poverty in the 60s if the post-World War II expansion, you know, that sort of post-World War II job boom you always hear about, if everybody had had access to the opportunities Mm -hmm. created by the post-World War II boom. And in fact, what we talk about is That economic prosperity in the 50s and 60s was really fantastic for the people for whom it was really fantastic for. But there were people left out or kept back. We, I know people are familiar with redlining and the kind of residential segregation that that, um, cemented into place that kept, kept some people from living in communities where there might be better access to jobs, unequal access to the GI Bill, which was an incredible federal policy Providing access to free or low cost education, free or low cost loans to get jobs, which are great opportunities for many families. But in fact, Blacks in our communities were denied access to those opportunities, to the had unequal access to the GI Bill. It was public housing, there was unequal access to public housing so a lot of these great opportunities that had been built in this country for some were denied to others and so when the great society was created it was saying look you know the civil rights movement had been really active in
1: you
2: know um, in the 50s and 60s and we're saying we they're shining a light on how some people some communities were really left out. So we have this various legislation, these var- varieties of legislation that were created in the Great Society to try and directly address some of these inequalities and provide greater access to those who've been left out. We could argue about how effective the implementation of all of these laws passed during the Great Society has been. I think they're, you know, I think we still see inequality. I think we still, we, we know we still see inequality. Um, by race in this country and in Massachusetts, and that's those are problems of implementation in many cases. But the community action agencies were created to be right there in the communities to sort of bring bring opportunity to the communities where they were seated. And so the EITC, as we say, you know, we like to say at Mass Budget that poverty, you know, most poor people are working, so it's not that people need people do need work but most people are working they just need access to well-paying stable reliable jobs you know and that's one of the things that the eitc does it's a, it's this idea of helping make work pay so if people are working at low-paid jobs it helps get some money back in their pockets from because not all work pays well enough to help people make a good living um in in Massachusetts. Um, other, areas that we focus on are um, poverty is also a result of under-resourced communities. And I know you've talked on this show before about ways that the state and federal partnership uh, resources our public resources can be brought into our communities to make sure that every, every community has equal access to resources. And one of the one of the roles in the report that we've done with the community action agencies is to highlight, you know, geographical disparities as well, where certain parts of our state just, you know, you can see enormous differences in who is poor um, across, across Massachusetts. So what we've tried to do in this report um, with the community action agencies is, is create this sort of big picture, put in context the kind of work we've done, and I don't know if we'll get a chance to talk more about this, but I do want to mention that we have we at Mass Budget have worked with um, the, the local community action agencies to have conversations mm-hmm. about what are the app, what are the uh, barriers to opportunity um, in the individual communities where the community action agency is brought together people from the community and stakeholders and political leaders um, to talk about the kind of context that we've set in the report done by mass budget and see what it looks like in the community.
1: So, I, I you know, as I listen to you talk about your work, I, I just jumped, the question that jumps out at me, and I think that most people are, uh, many people wonder is in a country where we have so much like what are the driving factors that are, that is still allowing us to still have lingering poverty? Like, you, you know, Joe, you talked about the, the Great Society programs and, and all that being created, you know, so long ago, and we're still dealing with those problems. What are the main factors that are, you know, keeping people in poverty? Is it a situation like medical bills? Is it, are there, is it particular uh, life instances or is it just a, a pattern? Like, we're, like, how do we break the wheel? Well, let me um, respond
3: to that a little, and then uh, ask Nancy to expand. But you know, it's a it's a great question. It's something that we often about to talk about and, and act on. Of course, um, let me just say that the report this this report and and previous reports have uh, acted as incredibly important context for our work. And that's why we Nancy. Uh, was sort of featured at our forums our community conversations around the state six or seven of them we hope to have more and joins us when we go to the state house uh, to talk about our priorities which address those things that you were pointing out greg Um, because we think it's so important it's incumbent on us to constantly remind and to inspire these important conversations so that we can bring uh, people an understanding of what we perceive as some of the the causes um, that we need, the, the structural issues, the structural challenges that we know we need to continue to address, and they persist. Um, you know, I, I think first there's an understanding of, of uh, what um, of the poverty measure uh, And Nancy spends time in the report talking about uh, the supplemental poverty measure. And for us, it's really important to point out that what we really need to think about is. Given economic situation and given low wage work, what does it take to get by? Instead of necessarily hewing to the to the to the first poverty measure, let's think about what it takes to get by. And I think that's where the the, the second one comes in the, the, uh, the supplemental comes in. So I think it's the first enough mm-hmm. of what it really need, what it, what it means to get by. Second, the dynamic that Nancy describes in the report has to do with the the, the fact that. Uh, as productivity increased wages since the late 1970s have not increased at least for low wage and middle mid, mid, mid income mm. uh, it's more than quadrupled for uh, upper income but not not for low income and middle income and that's that's driving factor in poverty so the story of poverty is and I'm, I'm almost quoting Nancy verbatim the story of poverty is a story of low wage work And that's so critical, so that's a structural challenge that we continue to need to work on. And we need to work on that with employers and and with with government. And that's why programs like EITC and the minimum wage and other programs sort of recognize the fact that that many people are just not making enough to get by, despite the fact they're working more than 40 hours, they're working two jobs. So I think that's a big part of it. I I think uh, racism is a structural um, problem. that we that we need to continue to address. I think that drives this, as Nancy described in the report as well. Um, and then also, and again, the way Nancy put it, we if we the way the programs are created and the way they're implemented um, does not always uh, sync up with what you think should should be the case. Or because you know it's it's sort of this very movable feast in terms of the way that programs are created or adjusted or how they evolve and. Um sometimes you face challenges like the Cliff Effect, where, um, you know, with all the best intentions uh, at a certain eligibility level, the programs stop or, or the, the benefits cease. But that can represent sort of a cliff for people. They're, you know, you're yep. doing early education you care, subsidized early education you care, or the earned income tax credit, or other things. And all of a sudden that stops. And so that's an ongoing conversation. Um, I think it's those three things. How do you and for that one in particular, how do you make it less cliff and, and more like a hill? Um, intentionally, you know, consciously. So these questions, these issues, uh, understanding that what we do uh, has reduced poverty in, in, at least in half if, if, our, if, if these programs didn't exist. Um, but this all will be part of, uh, and more will be part of the commission on poverty, which was just created. Uh, and again, Nancy's report at a crossroads will provide context for the research and the study that this commission, we look forward to participating and will do, uh, chaired by Representative Decker on the House side and Senator Jalen on the Senate side. it was just a passed in the last budget uh, and it has a, a term of this current calendar year. We are hoping that that be extended, but we're looking forward to being able again, as part of our mission, to have this conversation, to constantly keep it in the forefront, because we really do need to talk about about how do you address poverty? Because it really, in the end, the greater the greater and greater a gap between rich and poor, the more more unstable a society is. And the reaction to the challenges posed by COVID, I think, were a lesson, as, as Nancy addresses in the report, in terms of how we how we can how we can join together. It's a matter of make, of make those policies. And keep them going. And that's the other question: How do you sustain this? We can talk about that in a second. But Nancy, please, please elaborate.
2: Yeah. So, um, so one thing I do want to say: I was delighted to hear um, Joe talk about actually what's one of the charts that's in our report because you know I'm from Mass Budget. I love charts and graphs, and <laughs> um, so I and I love to explain them. But one of one of the things that um, Joe is referring to is that. In fact, and just to be clear, you know, the all of all of these barriers or obstacles, these are policy choices. You know, it is a policy choice mm. to create a barrier. It is a policy choice to allow a barrier that exists to persist. And so when we see that um, the economy is growing, but wages, as Joe was just mentioning, stopped. You know as the way I described it is is you know the economy is growing fine but wait that growth stopped going into people's pockets right it used to be that the growth in the economy sort of went into people who were went into the workers' pockets you know sort of the benefits of that growth showed up in increased wages that stopped that 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 relationship broke um, in about the mid 70s and it's an example of we might have had um uh You know, uh, the Great Society might have created um, federal agencies to support workers, you know, the Department of Labor had support for unions and for for workers in the 70s. Those agencies were starved of resources, so that all of a sudden the kind of federal oversight um, and support for workers and the role of unions in the workforce got cut back. And so when you don't have that sort of regulatory support for those that kind of oversight, even though you'd have a law in place, if you don't fund it, it can't do its job. And so those were the kinds of changes, the federal minimum wage over the years, I mean, we have a state minimum wage, thank goodness in Massachusetts, still may not be high enough, but the federal minimum wage has not kept up with inflation over the past decades. So in, in places where people are, are paid minimum wage, it's not a living wage anymore, and so you can have a lot of the economy is doing fine. You know, there are some people are making a lot of money, but it's not low and middle middle wage workers. And even in Massachusetts, with even with our better state minimum wage, a lot of low wage work is sort of tagged to what the minimum the you know the salary levels are tagged to what the minimum wage is. And when the minimum wage isn't really keeping up with the cost of living people in lower and, you know, lower moderately paid jobs just don't make enough to kind of keep up with the cost of everything. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm, I just wanted to sort of amplify what Joe said about that, that the, to point out that the implementation of the protections we might have really, really matters. Um, the other um, the other point I want to um, emphasize, emphasize that Joe made is about What we know about a lot of these programs that were created during the war on poverty or expanded during the war on poverty, like the EITC, like SNAP, like fuel assistance, like housing supports, like school meals, all of those kinds of supports, we know, in fact, because we can prove it, that those programs work. They have worked when you use this supplemental poverty measure, which is just another way of measuring poverty, which is actually a sort of a more sophisticated and nuanced way of measuring poverty than the official poverty measure, it can, it documents that these programs in Massachusetts have cut poverty in half for people overall, for kids. They have keep, they those programs keep hundreds of thousands of people out of poverty. Thank goodness. I mean, that's, that's great. So we know these programs work. It's these other structural problems that Joe or Joe was talking about that are so like, we want to get everybody else out of poverty too. So we need sort of, we need work that pays and we need these supports for everybody who, you know, everybody has hard times once in a while. We need to have that sort of web of supports for all of us in case anybody falls on hard times so that if you have a hard time, it doesn't mean you're stuck in hardship forever. And so it's both things. We need work that pays and a really strong web of supports and well-resourced communities, schools and, you know, health centers and those sorts of things that in our communities to make sure that every safe and safe and affordable housing so that everybody um, has, you know, sort of has their best chance at their brightest future.
1: So you were saying that the that the poverty is really in it, or the, the existence of poverty in America is really a policy choice. What are some of the, you know, I'm sorry, if, I, if this, that feels about where what you were coming from. Um, how does that, how does that, um, what are some of the things that we can do in policy to change that? What are some of the policy choices that we can make um, from your research and from your work, Joe um, jo and Nancy? What are some of the things that we could do? What are some of the choices that we can make that that could change that? Because it feels like to me, maybe if, you know a few people give up a little bit we'll all be okay and it doesn't you know i mean that like it doesn't seem like it would take too much for all of us to be all right you know i'm not saying everybody's driving around with lamborghinis though that would be cool uh but if not you know what what is the the happy medium for us
3: i I think there's so many levels to that question and um let me start with with one and i think it's and this is that we've actually made progress lately, I think because of the crisis, with uh, our friends in, in industry and, and different um, sectors in, in terms of employers. Um, uh, recognizing that it's, it's very important to have a partnership with agencies like ours mm. and with mass budget. So that, so that together, we can recognize the importance of um, supporting workers. Um, And and I think that that waxes and wanes, you know, the the economy and how things are going, but I think that partnership is important. On one side of it are the structural challenges we talked about in terms of wages, et cetera. But the other side of it is a continued investment in the programs that work. And, you know, so we have, um, we've got a, set of policy priorities uh, that MassCap actively works on there are, are a variety of policy priorities that, that other folks work on and we join with them but the ones that we work on uh, have to do with strength strengthening as we talked about before strengthening the human services infrastructure there's a there's a line item that supports community action agencies and so we're we're hoping that that in, it continues because we see that 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 infrastructure that not is not just community action agency but other other CBOs is so critical to these supports because until we get to that point, Greg, where people are earning earning enough, um, we're, well, we're always going to need, I think, supports for folks who are having just challenges, sort of um, bad luck. Um, but until we get to that point, I think these programs are really are really important. So along with along with uh, this infrastructure piece uh, supporting the community action agency line item, we also are supporting. Um, resources that would really strengthen the early education and care system, which is struggling and took such a hit during COVID mm-hmm. to support the salaries for early education and care workers. That would go a long way in terms of low wage workers, but also would stabilize the system and improve quality, which has an impact for generations. Um, the other uh, activity that we're supporting in the budget is strengthening, again, this goes to the wage piece, strengthening the voluntary insights that allow for free tax prep for thousands and thousands of people across the Commonwealth across the country again that supports the fact that there is this wage gap and that addresses that addresses the wage gap now you know maybe Nancy can address what what is a more organic and better approach to addressing the wage gap but that right now we think that that's really a critical approach and then finally something that we're working on currently now with legislators is support for fuel assistance, again, which is a basic support program, but it, it speaks to the fact that in this country, nobody should have to worry about being cold and unhealthy and unstable in their home. And so, and the state has responded over the years. It's real partnership when there is a need for more fuel assistance to supplement the federal amount. We, we ask with research and details for uh, some state money. And so we're working with them now on, on the possibility of state money you know, soon to help in particular people who meet with oil who, who, who aren't protected by um, a moratorium on shutoffs. And so those are the, those are the priorities that we have. And, those, and that, so that's sort of one side of the answer, Greg, it's to support these programs that we know work and allow us to improve them through resources and through design. But then there's the other side of it, which is the structural piece. And I'm thinking Nancy might be able to address that. Mm-hmm. A
2: little bit. Yeah. So thanks, Joe. And I want to go back to something you had mentioned before, where you talked about how COVID has sort of, um, I think, forced everybody to look at things in a new light. And it, it was not an accident that we referred to this as, you know, at a, cost, at a crossroads caused by COVID. And I right. think that. Um, In a very short period of time, a lot of people um, started hearing about structural racism and a racial reckoning. A lot of people were experiencing a global pandemic and a health crisis and all of the inequities in um, life experiences that the pandemic made bear very, very quickly and the economic downturn that was brief, but really, really profound. And so our feeling is that these crises all together really allowed us as a Commonwealth to take stock at who we are and where we are. And um, I think this is an opportunity for us to say, to to realize what we've seen. Joe just mentioned the 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 federal partnership with the federal government, and one of the um, one of my favorite charts in our report is where we can show how the federal relief provided relief provided by the federal government in in response to COVID has had a direct impact on kids families. Uh, reducing racial disparities um, across the country, and the way it's the way it's done that is with the expansion of the Earned Income Tax Credit and the extension of the Child Tax Credit, the federal Child Tax Credit, and um, which was um, which was distributed to families on a month by month basis, and you can document how month at a month by month looking at poverty on a monthly level you can see how poverty is cut in half by those two federal supports it's kind of amazing actually mm-hmm. that it that those two supports cut poverty in half on a month when you look at monthly poverty statistics and what this is telling us first of all is that the federal and state partnership is an important tool That we can talk about and think about. And putting people in, putting money in people's pockets actually matters and makes a big difference. We highlight a a handful of um, uh, basic income programs. Um, There's one, it started in Stockton in California, but in Chelsea, there's a program called Chelsea Eats. There's the Cambridge recurring income for success and empowerment, the RISE program, and Lynn has their family health project. These are three Massachusetts projects, just little small experiments, taking some of the, in some cases, taking this kind of federal COVID relief that has come to the town and said, let's see what happens if we do the, just put some money into poor people's pockets and see what happens. And the results have been really interesting and illuminating. First of all, people are spending the money on basic necessities. Yeah, I mean, a very thorough study of the Chelsea uh, experiment has found that the people are people know where they need the money the most. You know, maybe one money, one, maybe one month they need it more for food, and another month they need it to help with rent. But people have the um, are these are these are programs that let people spend the money as. Each family needs it. You know, it's not money that has to be spent on one thing or another. And these are really successful examples. And there is ha, there is talk about it, how an extension of the earned income tax credit could better um, mimic that kind of a program to really um, expand who might be eligible for it and how. And and uh, what I really like from the federal example is what. What happens when you, that kind of EITC money is distributed? Let's say we're distributed month by month rather than all in one, one lump sum, you know, when you get your tax refund. So there are there are lessons we can learn from things that are working that I think are really exciting. And you know, COVID put a lot of federal money into the states. Um, into the state's economy, first of all, to save the, our state economy during the economic downturn, but also there's money that we that could be available to be really targeted to the community's hardest hit. And there's some, um, you know, I think there's opportunity for creative thinking, for creative thinking about that. And I will say something else to answer your question more directly, Greg. About are there ways, you know, given inequality, um, that we could help. Um, that we could, we could use our money to help um, address inequality. And in fact, you may be familiar with uh, uh, the fair share amendment, which will be on the ballot in November, which would um, add a four percentage point um, increase in on the personal income tax on the first dollar of your second million. So you don't pay it until you've you started earning your second million and that additional money would be a couple billion dollars each year that would go into the state budget that could be directed to early education as joe was saying at our K12 schools we know and we talk about in our report about there's been a lot of discussion of the mental health crisis in um, for kids in schools there's you know this money could be used to help support better supports for kids in schools it could help with um, uh, reduce debt for for young our young adults who are trying to um, complete a higher education. So there's, as well as transit and, you know, keeping our roads and bridges safe. So that's one place where we could um, better equalize right side up our tax system, ask our very, our very few, you know, seven out of a thousand of our taxpaying households would be subject to the fair share and Ask those few people to pay just a little bit more. As I say, it's just, you know, uh, it's four cents more on the first dollar of their second million, and to help help fund some of these things that we're talking about.
1: Well, then, so it's interesting. You you talked about that extra money that was given out, and nobody went out and got a diamond ring. No one bought, you know, no one bought any cars, and I think that. Many times that is the 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 narrative that certain folks like to push out that if you give give poor people money that there'll be there'll be abuse and and you know and those things will go on and I wonder you know when you give you know when you give people in poverty money they spend it on things they need yeah it just just seems as just as (laughs) simple as that they they spend it on things they need and then the thing that's amazing is that they have to buy those things from people who I've already got infrastructure, and I got money, and I'm rich, so the money comes back to you anyway.
2: Right, you know, right. and in fact, one, uh, you know, um, the, the federal the federal government has put about 115 billion dollars into the state economy mm-hmm. um, uh, with COVID relief, and that money is going. If you if you increase money for food assistance for, for SNAP, you know who's getting that money. Is the lo- is the grocery stores the, the the people who run the corner markets that's where the money's getting spent. So this kind of money has this you know sort of, the, the, this ripple effect, it, it multiplies in mm. multi the, the economic benefits multiply in our communities. Absolutely. Look, as we know, people who are living paycheck to paycheck, you know what that means? They are spending every penny of their paychecks in their communities. So it's right. really good for the communities to make sure that people have enough money in their pockets so that they can spend it. You no,
3: know, it's an interesting point you make about the ripple effect and your point, Greg, too. We all make economic decisions, and that's and that's really what's what's going on when these resources come into a community. People people think about it. By the way, it's much harder to live on a limited income than otherwise, and so that so that that that's something that people I think need to be reminded of. And it's an achievement to do it. Um, the EITC is an important program because of that ripple effect. You know, there's a very old movie, and I can't I can't quote quote it correctly, but Hundred dollars that goes to the grocer, then that same hundred dollars goes to the dry cleaner because the grocer is paying his bill, and then the dry cleaner pays the water company, for you. and then it, you know. So it's that kind of it's that kind of overly simplified concept. For every dollar we found from research done by Children's Health Watch at Boston Medical Center, a dollar forty-four is the ripple effect in a community. The earned income tax credit comes back to the community. It's like a mini stimulus package, uh, if you will. Honestly, and so. That, you know, that program itself, I think is illustrative is of, of what we're talking about and the original point that you were making uh, about, or Nancy was making about how we learned that that when there's a sort of clarity and will uh, and an investment, um, that the results are entirely positive. And, The further question about the the investment that the federal government has made and 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 continues to make at least this this fiscal year and it's next fiscal year is how do agencies like community action agencies and others. um, work with state government and with federal government. uh, To kind of not only maintain the resource, you know it's not be possible to maintain it at that same level. But also. To really embrace and carry forward those lessons about what works. And, and so that's that's part of what we're that's part of what we're doing. That's why this report is so important, because that's a point that's very strongly made in the report and, and can't be lost uh, in, you know, in in our discussions. So one of the, you know, one of the areas that we want to um, make sure that we can maintain the enthusiasm about is the earned income tax credit, uh, because of how effective it is in, and the enhanced CTC child tax credit how effective that has been uh, and so we're you know we continue to, to talk about um, what you know, how we can partner to sustain in some set in some way the resource but more importantly um, the design you know the program design and the additions
1: it feels like that ripple effect is kind of at the root of of getting people to understand the importance of, of your work just because you know I know with mass budget, you're you're explaining to people the the policies and why the policy means something, and I think that most people um, are looking for what what's in it for them, and that's the what's in it for them. So if you're not receiving that that credit, you know, but you're a business owner, that that will come back to you in one way, shape, or form. And I think that maybe if we see ourselves as high, having a tied uh, destiny, or our, our destinies being linked, maybe we'll we'll stop kind of vilifying the poor because I feel like many times we that's a piece as well that people like to to vilify you in poverty and you know there's a variety Nancy just laid out you know so many different things and and you as well Joe the fact that the GI Bill wasn't equally applied to everyone that alone could could have solved most of our problems because the the ripple effect of of what came out of the GI Bill you know and just even, even if you still wanted to, to redline and say you can't buy in this neighborhood here just you could buy in your neighborhood it's like there, there's just there's those pieces that aren't there not to say that you know discrimination is right but i mean just you it's just those pieces that people just don't see us being into yeah. in this together we're all in it together
2: absolutely and i love that you brought up that example um greg because one of you know one of the recommendations or one of the conclusions that we come to Mm -hmm. is this importance of wealth building because you know the way you you know wealth is wealth inequality is essentially you know the result of generations of income inequality how do people get wealth they usually get wealth from the generation before them. And if your parent or grandparent was denied access to buying a home or getting a loan for a business, or um, then you don't have that wealth to pass on to your kids. Right. That's and cool. so even something like that, you know, if the EITC helps build bit it, you know, if if we have resources to help build the small businesses in our communities who are the ones who will be where people will be shopping you know when they have money in their pocket from the eitc or from mm-hmm. snap or from you know a basic income that helps build the generational wealth that can then move on you know we can break those cycles if we can mm. build wealth generally generationally and start to sort of keep keep that keep that growth going i guess
1: i i I'm reggie i'm I, sorry I've, I've just been jumping all in <laughs> asking all the questions there is another co-host to this show folks <laughs> just so you know we do have there is a third voice a fourth voice rather that you can you will hear shortly <laughs> go ahead reggie
0: now oh, joe were you going to say something really
1: quick
3: oh, please i you know i was i, I wanted to just sort of uh, add on to the theme of That we're all in this together, and I think that the I think the the crisis sort of made that real for so many people, and it that that waxes and wanes too. People forget, but uh, one of the one of the services that really uh, increased the need that really increased, uh, and something that our members almost universally got more involved with was um, food insecurity, uh, and it was almost almost like a, one of the, the the first indicators of. Economic hardship brought on by the pandemic, but it's always it's always been there, and people came to us who had never come to us before and so I do think that more and more people are beginning to relate and 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 know that instability can strike virtually anybody and i so I think that that, that that's such an important thing to remember that we're all in this you know we're all in this together uh, and it's it's something that we ourselves um do our best to, um, to point out through information that we provide at our websites about the people that we serve and and, and, how, and how we serve them. Because I think humanizing this whole um, enterprise is so very important. I'm sorry, Reggie, go right ahead.
0: No worries at all. Um, we have talked about so many different things in this conversation. It's been really eye-opening for me. And when I look back on the report and some of the findings, you know, seeing uh, what nearly 1.6 million children were undercounted in the 2020 census. There's a lot of intentional harm that has been done to marginalize and primarily Black and Latinx communities as a result of these policy failures. How do you how do folks recommend that we actually work to solve some of that harm? How do we unpack these conversations? You mentioned a little bit about the different briefings that you've been having regionally in the field. I'm curious to hear what folks who are on the front lines of closing these gaps by connecting folks to these resources, whether that's the EITC or the child tax credit, the VITA sites, the volunteer income tax assistance programs, like what are folks saying out in the field about this and how, how do we really work together to create that shared destiny that Greg mentioned as a, as a something that everyone feels connected to.
3: Well, I think, I think the the first well the, the reactions that we've been first of all, you mentioned the people that we that work in our agencies the fifty five hundred people that work across the state at community action agencies, that they, they are you know along with the people that we serve are, are the real heroes, um, and I think that they in a in a very sort of deep and acute sense share that that common bond of responding to a crisis. Um, They've, they've endured so very much. And many of the folks in our network and in networks across the state are first, I would say our first responders in, in some sense, um, because like uh, folks who work in hospitals and medical settings, many of our folks were at work every day, uh, whether it was in shelters, whether it was at early education care centers, uh, or even or even making sure that the agencies you know the fiscal offices were 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 there as well at our at our agencies, uh, and so I, I just want to point that out um, first and foremost because we don't we don't we don't say that enough uh, to the people that that work in our agencies that what what they did was uh, heroic, and in some sense, this, um, and so we've tried our best to make sure that we're never going to go back to full time everybody at work. I don't think anymore. But we do know that that agencies there are we are always going to have people right there on a the job working every day with people that we serve. Um, what have they said to us about what's important? Uh, and this is this is sort of a, uh, um, if you will, um, a term that that people use when we're talking amongst ourselves. Um, case management, uh, you know, work making sure, that even more than we had perhaps before. Uh, understanding and getting to know uh, the people that we serve—that uh, became sort of a theme in our conversations. Uh, that making sure that we're, we're we have those connections uh, with the people that we serve, and I think it did have to do with the fact that more and more people can relate to the challenges and the suffering uh, that that ensued during the uh, during the pandemic. And then the other aspect of this that that we we've heard from the people that we serve or people that that we work with in our in our agencies our staff um, is how very important it was to work so closely with uh, state and federal um, agencies uh, to make adjustments uh, almost on the fly in terms of implementation, changing certain regulations or rules uh, so that we we could be as effective as possible. So that that aspect of the crisis where people came together and improvised a little bit in terms of program design, um, that's what we've heard. That was a breath of fresh air and and the people that we work with in our agencies, our staff um, are looking forward to that, the spirit of that, if not the, the practice of that continuing.
2: Yeah, I wanna just really lift up a part of what Joe just said there, because I think it's such a, a good example of when um, you know the community The communities affected know what the communities need and you know that was an example of sort of in this time of crisis you know we're sort of scrambling to try and figure out what to do and the community's saying well this is how we think we need to do it this is what we need and I think that that's we those of us who are sitting and writing reports about things always need to be lifting up centering and really listening to the voices of the people in the community, the voices in the community. People know. People know what they need. Just like with the, those. You know, you were saying, um, Greg, about the the those income those guaranteed income pilots. People know how. People know what they need to spend their money on, and you know communities know what's missing and often have the best ideas about what the next step is. And I just think it's the extent to which policymakers, at the local, the state the federal level listen to the voices in the community. I think there's, I think the answers are there.
3: Better better at providing information to the people that we serve and also getting better and better at having a two-way conversation with the people that we serve. We receive phone calls across the network every day. Um, And what I'm hoping uh, or I'm looking forward to, let's say uh, is working on the commission. And I know that one of the priorities of the two chair people of the commission is to hear from the people that we all serve, uh, and to make that a really important aspect of information about how we can improve what we do, uh, and so that that's you know, I, so I encourage uh, anybody to, who's listening uh, to to reach out to us if there are ideas about this or if there are needs uh, that we can that we can address. But I do believe it, that that back and forth, that conversation, that dialogue is so is so critical. And, and let me also say that I've, I, I love working with Nancy and listening to Nancy. We've we've had um, several opportunities for Nancy to present to us and to and to others, and um, I learn something every time. <laughs> so it's really it's really a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Yes, thank you. Thank you so much both to you, Joe, and to Nancy for all of the work that you're doing and all the insights that you've provided today. Very excited. And we'll have to have you back on the show to talk a little bit more about what work looks like down the road. Um, The policy recommendations that you've laid out are many of a step that we need to take to close equity gaps in the Commonwealth. And we're grateful for all the work that you're doing. Folks, that's all.
1: I was going to just throw in absolutely in the information from today was just illuminating and just so rich thank you so much for joining us and and sharing with sharing with us hopefully it wasn't too painful
3: no it's my pleasure it's it's always wonderful to have a a, a conversation with you all and i look forward to it i look forward to another thank you very much for inviting me.
2: thank you very much
3: all right
0: folks we'll catch you next time on the good trouble podcast